Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. In a normal season, we would be waist deep right around now in coaching change rumors and speculation. We probably even have a couple of major moves by now. So far, there have been just two teams to replace coaches during the season, Southern Miss and Utah State, which pushed out Gary Anderson over the weekend. Conventional wisdom has been that the coaching carousel will be relatively slow this year as schools struggle with the financial repercussions of the pandemic. But as the season moves on, administrators and especially fans forget about what an odd season this is and how it's kind of hard to evaluate performance. Seems like fans especially are reverting back to the default mode of fire everyone all the time. To take a look at which coaches are on the hottest seats, Dan Wolken from USA Today joins me. We'll take a look at some SEC hotspots such as South Carolina and Vanderbilt, along with the never-ending angst at Tennessee. Swinging around the country, we'll talk about the uneasy marriage at Virginia Tech between Justin Fuente and the Hokies, whether a confluence of events on and off the field could lead to change at Iowa, And we'll give our best guesses as to what happens at Michigan with Jim Harbaugh. Plus, at the end, Dan has an interesting idea for how to ensure a college football playoff is actually played this year. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast and Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, Give us a good review and a good rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. My guest this week on the podcast is Dan Wolken from USA Today. Great college sports columnist. Actually, Dan writes a little bit about everything, but college sports, I think, is his favorite thing. Is it still your favorite thing, Dan? Well, it's definitely what I write about most often. It's certainly the place where I've spent most of my time reporting over the years. So when you build up that kind of institutional knowledge and base of contacts, you probably should take advantage of it as much as you can. And certainly it never stops producing intrigue and drama and controversy. So it's a good place to be if you, if that's where you're, uh, if you're a sports writer, I guess. Yeah, especially this year. So over the weekend, uh, you were first to report, and I'll, I'll use this. We're going to talk about bigger things in Utah State, but you were the first to report that Gary Anderson was out at Utah State. And the reason why I guess it's notable, well, first of all, any kind of in-season hire, it, firing is notable or or departure, however you want to call what was that was framed. Um uh, maybe not so uh, so unusual that it would happen in November, except for the fact that Utah State's only played three games because it just started its season in November. But it just sort of sparked the idea that, you know what, we are probably going to get some coaching changes this year. We've already had one at Southern Miss very early in the season. Um, again, those are unusual situations, what happened at Southern Miss and what happened at, at Utah State. But I think we're probably going to get some changes, not a whole bunch. So what is your sense of, before we get into, you know, specific 
places that might be volatile. We came into this season with the idea that conventional wisdom was it was going to be a relatively calm, silly season. But as now we are into the season, what do you think? Where do we stand as far as coaching changes? That's a great question. It's interesting because when I canvassed people who do this for a living, uh, who follow the coaching carousel, who are either involved on the agent side or on the search firm side, the opinion was that there was only going to be maybe five or so openings in college football this year, that you might get a couple retirements, a couple schools may just decide they've had enough. And probably more smaller buyout coaches, if there are any, were going to be more vulnerable and that the big buyout coaches would probably be safe. And look, I I don't think that Gary Anderson had this massive buyout, but it does indicate that even for Utah State, a school that does not have a ton of resources, if the desire is strong enough to make a change, that you can justify it financially. And so, look, I, I think there are going to be some schools that maybe would have otherwise looked to fire a coach this year who were not going to be able to do it. But I do think that there are some who maybe the conventional wisdom a couple months ago was that guy will get another year no matter what, that maybe we need to rethink. Somebody explained it to me this way, uh, sort of pushing back on the conventional wisdom of uh, there will be few changes. And they said – and again, this is somebody who knows the industry, is involved in, in searches and things along those lines and, and with coaches, basically said, listen, I understand people are short on money this year. Athletic departments are all you know scraping nickels together to try to come up with ways to fund things and ways to make up revenue losses. But it also puts an even more of a priority on maxing out next year's revenue. So if you think holding on to your coach is going to affect next year, which is the way the math works even in a normal year, right? You do the back of the napkin of what's it going to cost to keep them, what's it going to cost to get rid of them. But I, I think his point was if we like, there might even be more of a priority at certain places to realize that, listen, we, we have to make sure next year we are fully whole. And if we are, if there's any chance that keeping this guy is going to hurt that chance of being fully whole next year, it maybe motivates a few schools to 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 act. And I I don't know what you think about that logic, but that sort of made some sense to me. I certainly think that'll be the case. People are going to have to do a lot of the math on what loss of business is due to COVID and what loss of business is due to people canceling season tickets, canceling donations, the traditional stuff that drives a lot of the coaching changes. But the other factor is optics. And I do think that at certain schools where they're cutting sports, where they're laying people off, where they've uh, gotten rid of their sports information department or whatever it may be, that you can sort of create a backlash if you take it too far and you've made all these different cuts, and then all of a sudden you're sinking money into a football coach who's not going to work there anymore, that has to go into the equation somewhat, not just for athletic directors, but for university presidents who have to serve a larger community and whose constituency includes the academic side as well. So uh, we do get very cynical about sports at the end of the day. Winning is what's most important. Uh, 
but these are unusual times, and I do think some of these schools will have to weigh if there's a backlash or if there's a public relations price to pay and maybe just hold off one more year. So we always tend to jump to the SEC if we're thinking about where are there places where they'll find the cash, right? <laughs> like I think so the SEC, because those schools are so committed to having good football and it's so important to the people who are in, who are the constituencies of those schools, um, maybe some of that backlash that you're talking about gets put to the side and it becomes more about, listen, we got to show that we're serious about winning. We The program is in bad shape. So some of the pandemic stuff, becomes maybe a little more secondary when you have a school that is so involved with football or so committed to football. So I, I'll jump to the SEC immediately. This In a normal year, this almost certainly would have been a make-or-break year for Will Muschamp. They are coming off of an embarrassingly bad performance uh, against Texas A&M. Uh, you know, again, from the folks I talked to, that seems like a place that could still get hot what do you think about where where South Carolina is? Because again, that would in a normal year, if if it wasn't for the pandemic, it was absolutely make or break for Muschamp. Uh, now, with I believe it's like about a fifteen million dollar buyout, is that too steep for the Gamecocks? You know, uh, coffers these days. Yeah, I think it's probably a coin flip, and Muschamp is no longer a unknown commodity we've got a pretty large body of work when you combine what happened at florida and what happened at south carolina he just cannot put together a functioning offense and he's he's made some bad hires uh they recruited this very highly touted quarterback who's now sitting on the bench uh it's getting very ugly from a fan standpoint you've got clemson in the same state, continuing to, to roll toward another college football playoff berth. I, I don't know how much they can withstand. And I, I do think that they could probably find the resources if they needed to. Uh, now, the whole issue of who they would hire and all that is, is separate. Uh, South Carolina has been a job that, frankly, Spurrier had it really good for a little while, but it's it's not a job that's ever been great. It's not a, a job that's ever been in the upper echelon of the SEC. So um, you're always kind of rolling the dice there in terms of coaching hires. But with each passing week, if they don't uh, show any signs of life there, I would lean toward probably making a change. I'm going to get back to South Carolina because they'll come up again with in another portion of this show with another slightly different topic. Um, Vanderbilt is... A school that, you know, listen, they, they do have some different priorities at Vanderbilt, right? And I think that the reason why they didn't fire Derek Mason after last year is because I the sense was there was a lot going on at Vanderbilt. They needed to sort of get the house in order as opposed to firing the coach, spending all that money to fire the, fire the coach and, and work in a new coach while trying to get the house in order. They made a lot of moves to get the house in order. That is your alma mater. And I only say that because I imagine it probably makes you, let's put it this way. A lot of people don't pay much attention to Vanderbilt. I, I, my sense is that you probably pay a little more attention, uh, just if nothing else, out of curiosity on what's going on with your, uh, with your alma mater. It seems to me, again, like at this point, they're probably, it, it, it's gone as far as it can go with Mason. One of the things that somebody brought up to me about Vanderbilt was, this idea that 
well, if the, if it's not a crowded market, that's a better opportunity for Vanderbilt to ju- to dive into the market. What is your sense of what's going on in Nashville? Yeah, I still think it's it's a tough job, and you know, it's really funny if you go back uh, to when they hired James Franklin. They felt like they were going to get Gus Malzahn at, at that point. I mean, there was a time where that looked like that was uh, or you know realistic. Uh, uh, they flirted with a bunch of those sec guys over the years and it's never uh worked out they end up going with uh, Derek mason and and he's uh he, he's had a real struggle there and and i do think that um vanderbilt if they can afford it if they can get to get the money together is probably one of the better candidates to make a change i think it's that's been the case from the beginning of the season uh, they hired an athletic director in Malcolm Turner who did not work out at all. They have promoted uh, Candace Lee uh, from inside. She's been there a long time. She was a women's basketball player at Vanderbilt, and, and she's got a lot on her plate, and she's got to fix the fundraising there. Uh, she's got facilities issues, and obviously football has, has really uh, slipped. And, and they've had a tough year. Like I don't think that you can or you should judge Derek Mason – just based on this year because they've had lots of COVID issues and, and things that are have had opt-outs. It's, it's been a mess, but the body of work is what it is, and it just doesn't seem like that's going anywhere. They also brought in somebody recently. They hired the Louisiana Tech's AD, Tommy McClelland, away from Louisiana Tech, not to be AD, but to serve as in a, in a role as, I think, like a deputy to Lee. Um that was interesting only because, well, here's a Power 5 school, but nonetheless somebody at the sort of the lower end of the Power 5, but the, the lower end of the SEC still means you have access to a lot of resources and a lot of cash. Um, pulling a sitting AD away to not be an AD was something that was interesting. Do you have any sense of what his role is going to be there? I, I don't, but I know that he is regarded as a good fundraiser, and that's a really key thing that Vanderbilt has just never been able to get aligned correctly is the power of their alumni base uh, who is scattered around the country but is generally kind of well-to-do and they have not really been able to get a ton of uh, uh, juice out of that and there's always been this controversy about whether the academic side or the administrative side of the regular university is holding them back, uh, that they don't want athletics to, to do their own fundraising. But I think the, the hire of McClellan sort of indicates that that's, that's not the case and that they do need to have an infrastructure there to, to get more people into the fold so that they can address some of those issues we just talked about. Okay, and because there's all this, these new people at Vanderbilt, Listen, it's always hard to speculate on what coach would fit where and where they might go. But the the sort of, again, going back to the conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom names at Vanderbilt over the last couple of years is like, well, Clark Lee, the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame, I believe he's a Vanderbilt grad. Maybe that would be an interesting fit coming from Notre Dame. Brent Pry, the defensive coordinator at Penn State, was with James Franklin at Vanderbilt. Maybe that's an interesting guy. Of course, the I don't know how, how seriously to take this, but there is the consistent rumor that Jeff Fisher is the coach in waiting over there at Vanderbilt. Again, I'm not necessarily sure if that's something I should take seriously, but you never know. Um, is that, again, the idea that, th- that they might not be 
a very heavy market of teams or 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 a, or a a crowded market. Do you th- do you buy that into that would help a school like Vanderbilt maybe grab a coach that normally they wouldn't be able to? Maybe, but I've always sort of wondered whether Vanderbilt should maybe take a different approach and try to get a Jeff Munkin, you know, somebody like that who could run the option or, or some type of, uh, you know, try to recreate what, what Paul Johnson did at Georgia Tech uh, for several years. You know, maybe there's a way that, that Vanderbilt could get in, into that market. Because I just think the traditional hire is so risky given the limitations uh, of that school. Like someone's going to have to just be exceptional uh, to, to get that program up off the mat and that maybe if there's a way that you can uh, do something different than what the rest of the league is doing, that gives you an advantage. But that takes a lot of, uh, a lot of guts and a lot of foresight. Uh, so Jeremy Pruitt just got a contract extension, I believe, right before the season started. The idea that he might get fired is, I, I don't think, is realistic at all. However, <laughs> I, you know, give me give me a read on what is going on at Tennessee, and also like what who who is. Uh, you know, this is Phil Fulmer's hire. Phil Fulmer, you know, sort of orchestrated a little bit of a coup there and, and, and got to become the athletic director and brought in his guy. So that makes it look as if Phil Fulmer's got a lot of power there. And clearly he does have a lot of power at Tennessee. But a lot of people, I think, have some power at Tennessee. It's a it's a place where there's a lot of cooks that are often sometimes in that kitchen. Again, I don't think Jeremy Pruitt's going to get fired. But what is the situation at Tennessee? Yeah, and it's a great point about the contract extension, and I don't know why any school is going to rush to give a contract extension to a coach who beats Indiana in the Gator Bowl, Um, especially if you're Tennessee and your goal is to get in the mix nationally and you look at the history that they've had. It, It doesn't really make a lot of sense that you're going to commit to, to that kind of coach until he actually starts beating the the Georgias and the Floridas and playing for SEC titles. But uh, that's the decision that they made, and here they are. Um, you know, Pruitt, after that game last week, I, I thought, you know, kind of went into that press conference and started explaining real football stuff and strategy stuff that really most people aren't going to understand. And when you start doing that, it kind of talking down to people a little bit. um, Boy, I don't know that that that's a great long-term strategy. Um, They have regressed significantly since the beginning of the season where they looked okay against Missouri and South Carolina, not great. But ever since then, they've they've kind of just evolved, and there there is sort of this arrogance about the Nick Saban disciples, and yet none of them have really been able to f- put together a functioning offense. And meanwhile, Alabama's gone 180 degrees in their approach, and yet you look at South Carolina, you look at Georgia, you look at Tennessee, you know, all those guys trying to to be clones of what Saban had in the early 2000s. And they're just not doing it. It's just not effective, particularly. And on the offensive side of the football, uh, none of them have really figured it out. And so Tennessee's in a bad situation because they're just 
they're just so far behind Florida and Georgia right now. I don't know what it's going to take for them to catch up, uh, but they're going to have to give Pruitt time because I don't really see what other option they have. Yeah, the the Jim Cheney hire at Terrible. offensive coordinator was was it was just at the very least it was underwhelming, right? I mean, you can whether even if you want to give it the benefit of the doubt, I, you remember kind of thinking like I remember when they made that move and just sort of being like, well. He's definitely an offensive coordinator. I, I, I'm not really sure what your what your plan is there, but he's definitely an offensive coordinator, and I, I, maybe he'll evolve a little bit. But yeah, I mean, they're running. They're just they're just playing the game the way it's no longer played at at, at Tennessee. Now, maybe you can say, well, they're working around their quarterbacks, and they don't have much faith in Garantano. But you know what? Garantano was a four high four star recruit. Maybe your job is to make them better. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. The, the quarterback decisions, the recruiting, the development, it's just not been there. And as far as Cheney, uh, let's be honest about it. Kirby Smart, uh, when Tennessee wanted to hire him, I, I think Kirby Smart was was rather uh, uh, willing to uh, help him pack his things and um, move to Knoxville. I don't. I don't <laughs> think there was any desire on the part of Georgia to keep him. So. I just think that the the whole philosophy and approach uh, of those guys has been rooted in the past, and it's starting to show in the results on the field, and it's putting a lot of pressure on uh, certainly more on on Pruitt right now, but but it also a little bit on Kirby. Yeah, we're, so we're right. Let's talk about Kirby. And again, Kirby is not on the hot seat, and this is sort of we're we're sort of mostly focusing on what changes might be made. And Kirby is not going anywhere. They're recruiting at an incredibly high level. They Georgia is still very much set up to be a threat to Alabama, and certainly one of the two main one of the two dominant teams in the SEC East for the next couple of years. This season is just simply not what it was supposed to be. They were not supposed to have a walk-on playing quarterback, and they they brought in a new offensive coordinator who was supposed to, quote-unquote, modernize things, and then they didn't have a normal offseason. Now, you live in Atlanta, so you're a little closer to the situation. How much do you think fans are sort of writing this off to, ah, the pandemic sort of ruined our season, or is there still this sense of, is Kirby doing allowing Monken to run? Like, what what is Kirby's philosophy here? Is he going to allow Monken to do the things offensively that the really successful championship level, national championship level programs are doing? I think there is some frustration with the fan base of Georgia right now because, uh, look, there's nothing you can do about Jamie Newman and whatever else happened with the quarterback situation and. I would venture a guess that JT Daniels just is not healthy enough to play right now or else we would see more of him. But the reality is that until you show on the field that you actually are going to be committed to a more aggressive modern approach, then everything they've said at this point is just lip service. And maybe this year it's just not on the cards to to figure that out because you don't have – the quarterback uh, to to get it done, but at some point, and you know maybe it's early next season, and they've got you know another highly ranked kid coming in. They they need to sort this out because the the from thing from 
you know, with Justin Fields, you had Justin Fields backing him up and never really getting a chance. They didn't really invest much in him. It was very clear Fromm was was their guy, and then Fields leaves and develops into the superstar, and Fromm has a bad year last year, or I'd say a mediocre year, and their offense doesn't really advance at all. Um, it, it it really puts, puts you in a bind because the, the narrative has been established that George is just not good offensively. And they need to find a way to fix that. Yeah, the other part of that is as much as, again, they're recruiting at such a high level, right? So that almost ensures them of being very, very good. And my standard line on Georgia has been, I think it's inevitable that they will win a national title because I don't think you can recruit at the level they're recruiting and not have one year where it all sort of comes together. They're close enough and one year it will simply all come together and you'll win a national championship. That said, they have had two pretty stacked teams the last couple of years. And, you know, again, I can assume and say, oh, it's inevitable they'll win a national title and look at what they're doing and they're and they're well situated to be dominant for several years. But you can also look back on the last two years and say, boy, we let some opportunities get away here. I mean, you know, I'm I'm assuming it will stay at a very high level, but these things don't always stay at a very high level. And again, my, my even though, again, it's a strange year with the pandemic and all the things that have happened, I, I do sort of wonder if there are, as you said, some frustration with Georgia fans looking back, looking around going like, these were opportunities. Like, the, these teams were good enough in almost every other way, and can we assume we'll keep getting these opportunities to have teams good enough in many ways, but not necessarily good enough in the ways they're supposed to be or the ways they need to be to win a national championship? Uh, you know, again, I'm assuming that there will be more opportunities, but maybe not. I mean, who knows? Yeah, I don't think anything's inevitable. You have to go do it. And the margins are very, very small. Uh, you, you have really good players at a bunch of positions, but if you don't have a great quarterback – then you're going to get into the kinds of games that Georgia's been in the last few years against Alabama, against LSU, in the SEC title game, and you're just not going to have enough. And so I don't think that Georgia's like falling apart or anything like that. Uh, I think this problem is addressable, but they really do need to address it. Like you can't just keep waiting and. I think a lot of the rhetoric of how they're recruiting or, or I guess around how they're recruiting, it, it starts to become a little bit less impactful with each year that goes by and the talent level, the skilled players don't seem to match up with what Alabama's got, with what Clemson's got, go on down the line. Uh, it's just a, something they absolutely need to improve. Yeah, uh, I think I had mentioned last week on on this show when I talked to Stu Mandel, you can have a bunch of four five star linebackers and guards, but if I have one five star quarterback, I probably have the advantage on you. <laughs> you know, so you can flash around all your all your stars, but if I have them, and that's what really that's the foundation of what Clemson has done, because Clemson doesn't even at its best in the last couple of years, Clemson has not stacked up. Um, to Georgia and Alabama in the recruiting rankings, but what Clemson does is a gets the guys it wants most, and b gets the the guys at the most important positions. And if we don't have a five star linebacker, that's okay because we'll beat you with our five star quarterbacks. 
I don't think any team is going to win a national championship anytime soon without an elite quarterback. I just don't see it. And even in the playoff the last few years, which team has been in the playoff without a really good quarterback? Yeah, you can say Mac Jones is not an elite quarterback, but Mac oh, Jones. Oh, I beg to differ. No, no, but I, I, I'm with you. But Mac Jones was was not a two two star, low three star guy. I think there may you know you could probably find a service that had him as a three, but I think basically he was a four star guy. He's probably like a fringe first round possible draft pick, and also Alabama is also that that team that surrounds its players with its quarterback with so much talent that is long that maybe you don't he's not Trevor Lawrence or or Justin Fields but the talent around him and he is very talented sort of kicks him up a little a notch sure but just go back a couple years ago when they had Jalen Hurts running the offense and and how kind of plotting it it looked and how Mm -hmm. they they just weren't quite good enough with him and all of a sudden, they go to Tua, and everything changes. I think Mac Jones is a really, really good quarterback. Uh, but I just don't think you're going to end up with very many teams, even in the playoff anymore, that just have game managers. I think just the dynamic guys are, are necessary to play at this level now. Okay, well, let me take a quick break here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with Dan Wolkin from USA Today. We're going to go back to the coaching talk and hot seat talk, and I'm going to throw some situations out there, and we'll start with um, the great unknown at Michigan, and we'll start with that right after this. Hey, it's Michael Rosenbaum. You may remember me as Lex Luthor from the hit TV show Smallville. Regardless, I have this really cool podcast called Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum, where I get celebrities who are a lot more famous than me to really open up. Let's get inside of Jim Jeffries. Oh, I never did anything with my life. I could have been a better son. Oh, God. I should apologize to this person. So join me on Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with Dan Wolkin from USA Today. We're doing a, a hot seat edition of the podcast this week, trying to figure out if there's going to be much movement. You know, again, as we said, we'll probably be a little more movement in the coaching carousel than maybe we thought at the beginning of the year, but it doesn't look like it's going to be a, a real hot moving carousel. I'm going to try to move around a little more quickly in the second half of this um, to try to just get more information in. So, Let's just shoot over to the ACC. I got three spots that are interesting. Two are, you know, probably not that interesting, and one a little more so. I think Syracuse will be fine with Dino Babers. You know, he's had one good season there and really a lot of losing. Otherwise, there was some promise before that one good season, and now it's really slid back. However, Syracuse doesn't strike me as a place that is in any position right now to be firing a coach that they just extended two years ago. Am I? Am I? Is my sense right on that? You think? I think so. It's obviously not gone well since they had that great year, but uh, they've also been just crushed by injuries both last year and this year. Mm-hmm. And so I think they'll have to give him more time. And it's also this is not a rabid football school. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, that, so, and that brings me to another not rabid football school. Listen, David Cutcliffe has been 
done a, an amazing job at Duke. He had a run of about five or six years of success at Duke, which was almost, you know, other than the Spurrier time way back in the late, early 90s, late 80s, they had, Duke hadn't experienced anything like this. So it's been a remarkable run for David Cutcliffe at Duke. But the last three years they have been descending and they, I, I was, I, I, it struck me only because yesterday I didn't watch any of the game over the weekend because it was such a blowout. But yesterday I was flipping around to some of the replays and I'm watching them get just hammered by North Carolina. I do wonder if, you know, David's getting up there in his late 60s, if at some point maybe he looks at this situation and says, you know, mutual agreement, well, let's just let's just try something different. I'll tell you what, uh, it's an interesting thought. It's not something I'd really put a lot of uh, time into because you just kind of feel like Cutcliffe is solid there. He's mm-hmm. done such a great job relative to the history and relative to the expectations. Uh, but, um, yeah, there does come a point where maybe it's just run its course. And Duke certainly put money into upgrading certain aspects of that program. I think it's proven that – they don't have to just be awful all the time. Uh, they can be good. But, boy, I, it's hard for me to imagine them moving on after this year. So the place that's most interesting in the ACC as far as possible coach movement is Virginia Tech, I think. Justin Fuente last year had a dalliance with Baylor. I think that that did not sit well with lots of folks at, no. at, at Virginia Tech, no. and yeah, and and now he has not, you know, this this season looked like there was a path to some pretty good stuff, and then you lose to Liberty, and quite frankly, a lot of it is your fault if you're Justin Fuente. Uh, you look like you got out coached, so. You know, football means a lot at Virginia Tech, and there's probably some sub- sub- substantial money that would have to, you know, change hands if Justin Fuente is not the coach next year. But are they willing to make that kind of move in a pandemic? This is another one of those examples where how harshly do you judge someone in a pandemic season? And is there confirmation bias for people who maybe? didn't like Fuente or just weren't bought in on Fuente, uh, is there confirmation bias in in the results this year? I don't know the answer to that. I've always regarded him highly as a football coach, and I do think that the Virginia Tech job is harder than some people think it it is because of the success they had under Beamer. But uh, this year, they've dealt with more COVID issues probably than just about anybody in terms of how it disrupted their season, their practice, their schedule. And yet early on, they actually had some decent wins. They had some pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty good results. And then all of a sudden it's slid backwards. And this Liberty thing was a, was a mess. And now it feels like everyone's kind of riding the roller coaster week in, week out with how they feel about Fuente based on what they just saw last how harshly do you judge him for a season in which they just had no luck at all with COVID? Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. And he's another one that, man, I, I just don't think you can pull the trigger now, but I certainly could be wrong. Yeah, and the odd thing also with what is happening at Virginia Tech is it, it really looked like a – it looked like that one was going to go great, right? It just – it really looked terrific there – 
early on because the, the transition was relatively seamless and, and they won early. They won a division title his first year. And, and again, it looked like the perfect marriage. But you never really know until the marriage plays out. And I, and I think more and more what you're also seeing to a certain extent is the transition at Virginia Tech was as much as much went so smoothly as much because of you had Frank Beamer, who was a really humble man who did not make it rocky. Right. I think that was as big a deal as anything else as to why Virginia Tech's transition went so smoothly. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, Beamer was the consummate uh, gentleman. He wasn't in any way working behind the scenes to sabotage things, which is unfortunately something you do see sometimes with legendary coaches who get a little bit of a nudge out the door. Uh, You had Bud Foster there as kind of a symbol of how this transition was going to work. Ultimately, I don't know that that actually played to the benefit of Justin Fuente to have Bud there, but uh, he's gone now. It's, It's totally Justin's program, and there's no doubt that the results are all on him. Uh, but at the same time, look at the last several years of, of the Beamer era, and they weren't very good. They were very no, they were much in that yeah. middle of the ACC. The recruiting had – I don't think Frank had spent a lot of time on the road. Like It, it was kind of a program in decline, and I, I guess I just don't think Justin's done that bad of a job. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um I also think it, you then start asking sort of existential questions with Virginia Tech, and, and that is how good should Virginia Tech be, right? They went through that amazing run that very with Beamer, and, and it had the highest of highs, right? They played for a national championship, and is it realistic to think that anybody, not just Fuente, could go back and reestablish Virginia Tech at the level that Beamer had it at its highest of highs. And, you know, that's not a normal, like I said, what what you're sort of judging him on is, can Virginia Tech be the best it's ever been? And I'm not sure if that's a fair way to assess any coach, whether it's Fuente or whoever else they get back in there. Let me bounce to the most interesting spot in the Big Ten, I think, is at Iowa. And again, this is a situation where we're not necessarily looking to we're not saying will a coach be fired as much as there's been a lot of stuff going on in the offseason with Kirk Ferentz. Um, this feels a little bit like like what happened with Michigan State last year and Mark D'Antonio, where there was some stuff off the field and then the product on the field went sour. And I think the combination of those two things leads you to, hey, I've had enough. I'm going to step away like D'Antonio did. And I just wonder if we're getting the right mix, the right stew, that finally Kirk Ferentz might, at the end of the year, go, you know what, maybe it's time to move on, and maybe somebody is pushing him and trying to convince him. I don't know. I mean, Kirk Kirk Ferentz is certainly more of an institution at Iowa than D'Antonio. Even as great as D'Antonio was at Michigan State, Ferentz is more of an institution at Iowa. When you mentioned the Big Ten, I thought you were going to lead me into a Michigan conversation, but uh, maybe we'll get there. We will get there. (laughs) As far as Iowa, yeah. I I think uh, if I were to just place my chips today, I would say it's more likely than not that there'll be somebody else coaching Iowa next year. It's not just the result of what's happening on the field right now. It's it's the entire offseason. It's the fact that the allegations from former players made Kirk look really – 
out of touch with what was going on right under his nose, out of step with the fact that, you know, these days, uh, in terms of, uh, diversity and inclusion, how you treat kids, uh, ability of young people to express themselves in a variety of ways, like just where Iowa was going is not where the rest of the world is going. And having that dragged out into public the way it did, I, I thought was just a really unfortunate uh, look for for Ents and for, for Iowa. And I'm sorry, but when the people who are responsible for the bad parts of the culture, according to the former players, the strength coach who's been there forever, and Kirk Ferentz's son, and the idea that Kirk didn't know anything about that or didn't enable it or it wasn't at his direction, that the program was going to be run that way, I don't know that a lot of people buy that, to be honest with you, despite whatever they found in the independent investigation. I, I just think it all adds up to that, plus this not being a very good year. It might be time for him to make a graceful exit. Right. And and it and listen, it's cynical, but it's the truth, right? If he had come out of the gates, you know, three and O and we were looking at an Iowa team that had a very had a strong chance of playing for a Big Ten championship, I think a lot of the other stuff goes away. But when the program looks stale on the field and you're having issues off the field, that's when the rubber hits the road and you could end up being in trouble. And again, you get an institution like Ferenc all of a sudden is, you know, there's questions about whether he's going to keep going forward at, at Iowa. Let's talk about, you know, it's funny when I brought up the Big Ten, like Michigan is its own thing and Harbaugh is its own thing. So I didn't even think of Michigan as part of the Big Ten discussion. But yeah, let's just talk about this. I think to figure out what's going on at Michigan, you probably need to be able to crawl into Jim Harbaugh's head. And I don't think anybody can or wants to do that. No. So so I'll, I'll, we'll just speculate. Give me your best speculation, maybe educate educated guesses from talking to people in the business about what could possibly go on at Michigan and, and what should go on at Michigan, your own opinion as to what should go on. You know, I think that what will end up happening is he'll sign a short-term deal, probably, you know, another extended out four years or something like that. And that he comes back next year and, more changes and more commitment to blah, 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 blah. We'll see if the results change. But honestly, I think he's not going anywhere because I don't think there's a whole lot of interest in the NFL. Mm. I I don't think it's just automatic that Harbaugh can walk into one of 32 NFL jobs, not only because of the fact that he's not winning in Michigan. I, I think that's maybe even a less factor than the fact that uh, – He's just sort of perceived as, as an odd duck and maybe a little bit of a pain in the neck and that he's just not worth the trouble. And that's one thing about these NFL head coaching jobs. You know, you if you're going to be a pain in the neck, you need to be great. You need to be a surefire winner. And I don't know that anyone perceives him that way despite the record it, with the 49ers, which was, which was very good. Yeah, it's um, my – my sense of it is, or I, what I, if I had to give an educated guess, again, I, I even could have swore, could have thought of him possibly leaving after this year. And again, I think more and more it's going to have to be him. Uh, oh yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think I, I don't see, you know, listen. I guess if maybe they go one and eight, and it's just a disaster, and they're getting beat 
and getting their heads handed to them every week. Yeah, maybe there's a possibility here. Ward Manuel and the the brain trust that Michigan just decides, listen, we, we've got to make a move here. I don't think it'll get that bad. But I just think that there's a you know I don't I don't know what kind of you talk about optics right is Michigan's president who was had to be sort of like nudged into actually playing a football season now going to want to fire a coach during a football season and come up with some kind of financial agreement that pays Harbaugh who knows you know eight or nine million dollars walking out the door not to coach uh, next year. Uh, that just doesn't seem like the Michigan way either. But I do find myself wondering if Harbaugh loves Michigan enough to sort of look himself in the mirror and go, this isn't working anymore. I've done all I can. I got it better than I than I got here. It's better than when I got here. Now it's time for me to do the right thing for Michigan and move on. That's the scenario I could see playing out this year. But again, I'm trying to crawl into Jim Harbaugh's head by doing that. So who knows? Yeah, exactly. It's it's total guesswork at this point. And also, Michigan's a pretty um, buttoned-up shop. Mm-hmm. You don't hear a lot of rumor and innuendo other than what the fans say, which obviously doesn't matter. Michigan itself, uh, it's not like there's a lot of gossip or well-informed speculation that that comes out of there and it goes to the fact that he's got one year left on his contract after this that doesn't happen anywhere else right and so so that also gives them an option again i'm talking about sort of the magnanimous harbaugh exit where he looks at the situation and goes you know what let's come to some kind of agreement here Uh, frankly harbaugh is the type of guy i could literally see leaving eight million dollars on the table like i I could see him possibly doing that and again maybe there's an nfl opportunity here where he could you know there that that covers the 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 buyout situation for michigan but i can see him in a situation where i love michigan i want michigan to do better i'm going to leave michigan and i'm going to leave them in a situation where they still have the resources to replace me well let's play this little fun game if Harbaugh leaves. Who's your this guy should should be the next coach at Michigan? Matt Campbell. Yeah, that's my guy too. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a slam dunk, right? But there's certainly other people who you could covet for that job. Uh, the Luke Fickles. Uh, people are very excited about what Jeff Halfley's done early on at uh, at BC, and both have ties to the Big Ten, but. Campbell, I think, fits the ethos of Michigan in a lot of different ways. He coached at Toledo, which is like 40 minutes from Ann Arbor. He seems to be the guy who would probably fit best and also would have a great chance to win uh, because he he does have, uh, I think, a very strong core philosophy of how he runs a program, of how he evaluates talent, of uh, getting guys to buy in. And the results are very good, very good, given what he's uh, dealing with at Iowa State. Right. And he's an Ohio guy, a Mount Union guy. So Michigan always has to recruit Ohio. That alone should, I, I think, would help him there. Yeah, I think that, again, to me, I think that would almost be a slam dunk. And I think Campbell is a guy who, 
is not going to make a lateral move. I think people look at what's going on, you know, him at Iowa State. Even when he went to Iowa State, there was a lot of, wow, that's a tough job. Like, is, like why not wait for something better? But I think that tells a lot about him. I don't think he has been a, a guy who has gotten his name out there much over the last couple of years. His name pops up around things a little bit, NFL jobs, but I don't think that's his doing. But I do get the sense from talking to people that, if there's a time, the time might be now. Again, it's not a great market, but the time might be right for him to make a move. But if he is going to make a move, it's going to be to a big job, a Michigan yeah, thought, or a place like that. Yeah, I thought the jobs that he could go to, honestly, would be either Michigan, Notre Dame, or the NFL, mm-hmm. or, or Ohio State if it ever came. Yeah, but Ohio. obviously, that's not happening, right? That's not happening anytime soon, right? Um. I think Texas is okay right now. I mean, again, you never know. Texas is Texas has been week to week. I feel like since about 2012, we have assessed, or maybe 2011, we have been assessing Texas week to week for almost a decade now. But I do think Herman at this point has won enough, and it looks like he will continue to win enough so that they won't go into the mess of again trying to pay all that money to get rid of him and, and do a search during a pandemic. So quickly, are you in that same area on Texas where you think at this point it's it's okay? I think it's okay. I think if the first couple weeks had not uh, turned around a little bit, and I'm not saying there's some sort of ju- juggernaut, but if that trend had continued, I think he would have been in more trouble, but it seems they've stabilized it a little bit. At USC... Is this a does is Clay going to get something of a pass this year? Because again, seven six games, maybe seven. Um, hey, just don't run the thing into a ditch, and we'll tr- we'll just run it back again next year. Which, of course, is not what the strategy USC had hoped for. What USC had hoped for this year is okay, Clay. Now we've given you everything you need. Let's see what happens, and then we'll make a determination. Does does USC have to sort of put its master plan on hold here and just sort of ride out this year? I'd put it this way. I think there's a better chance that USC will be 8-0 and talked about as a playoff team than that they make a coaching change. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment, too, especially – I mean, I know they pulled one out last week, yeah. which was a, a small miracle, but the fact of the matter is their schedule opens up opens wide after this. Yeah, they've got a pretty easy road. Uh, which, of course, leads me to – and, like, James Franklin's not on the hot seat, but because – the USC thing had been hanging out there the last couple of years. There was always this sort of like, well, if James is looking to move, right. if James is looking to move, now he's probably going to go through his his bad season at Penn State with no chance of, of actually exiting. I think everything is going to be fine for James at Penn State, but it is weird that the way this has worked out, that now it looks like he's taking a step back there and there is no exit option. Yeah, <laughs> I never saw this coming what's happened to them this year it's quite surprising Uh, and certainly assuming it continues this way it's going to lead to a lot of frustration I mean this is going to be a miserable offseason for him probably and for that fan base and trying to coexist together but I, I don't understand really where he would go or how they would upgrade look I have plenty of problems with the way he does game management and the season's not happening the way anyone thought it would, but I don't know who really could have done a better job there over the last five years. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I have no issue with, I mean, James Franklin, considering this, the situation he walked into, to have Penn State basically as a very, like, solid, solidly in the second tier of college football. And if I, I put the first tier in a very small tier of Clemson and Alabama, maybe Ohio State, and then the, the next bunch, Penn State has very much been in that next bunch. And, and I don't know what more you would want. I mean, you'd want them to be the one step higher, but... You're certainly not going to get rid of a guy who has you on the as the only team in the Big Ten who gives Ohio State a headache, right? I mean, the only team in the Big Ten over the last five years that has even been a you know a stumbling block for Ohio State, except for their odd losses here and there under Urban, has been Penn State. So no, I I can't imagine anything's going on with James Franklin at Penn State. Let me uh, throw another interesting guy at you, and that is David Shaw at Stanford. Now, again, it, I'm not saying he is going to get fired, but I do wonder if David's time there has passed, but they love him. He is one of their own, and he is a great representative for what you would want Stanford football to be. So it comes down to how much do you need to win at Stanford? It's such. I know they're not making a move this year, but it's. I feel like he's gotten himself into such an odd spot there, where the idea of of moving on from David Shaw would be hard to comprehend. And now he no longer has sort of the NFL value that he would have a few years ago. I think he's a great example of why I advocate for coaches to jump to new jobs every seven or eight years if they have an opportunity because it's just so rare to have a run of 10 plus years at at a school unless you're in the position of winning national titles and like what Dabo's done. Uh, There's a, a very small group of others, but just once you get to year 10, man, it's hard to sustain. It's hard to to be better than you were before. And the truth is, David's best years are likely behind him at Stanford. And maybe everyone's okay with that. Like that's if everyone understands that that's the deal, and they're willing to live with it. Cool, you know. But they've slipped. There's no doubt they've slipped. And I don't know at this point how easy that is to get back. Especially if you're going to continue playing as we mentioned with some of the saving guys, if you're going to continue playing basically 2005 football. Um, last one I want to throw at you is, well, a couple, what, before we switch topics a little bit, and that is, do you think even after two years, Les might decide, you know, this is not working at Kansas? Because it's clearly not working. It's not working, and I don't think it's going to work. I think we are... They are so broken. That program is so broken. And the idea that Les was going to come in here and fix it seemed like a terrible deal at the time, idea at the time and seems like even more of a terrible idea now. Are they just way, everybody too invested in that to, to, to decide after only two years that it's not going to work? I don't know really what they're thinking internally at Kansas, but that was one of those hires like everybody knew at the time that, okay, you've got a program that needs to figure out how to make a splash in the Big 12, how to make up ground, and yet you're going to do it with a guy who couldn't last at LSU because of his offensive philosophy. It was so broken and backwards that they had to run him out 
of one of the nation's premier programs. He's the guy who's going to get Kansas jump started. That just never made any sense to most people, and it's played out exactly the way we thought it would. Uh, it can't be fun. I mean, maybe he just enjoys going to work and being around the guys and whatever, but if you're Les Miles and all he's accomplished, like, what are you in this for at this point? I don't get it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, listen, we've talked about this. Like, it, like the idea of speculating who had a good, what's a good hire, what's a bad hire, grade the hires. It's a fun game that we do in this business, and it provides some interesting content to throw out there and chew over. But it's almost impossible to really know how these things are going to work out until you see them work out, right? There's all the dynamics that go into what makes a coach a good fit at a good place. There's so many things that it's, it's impossible often to figure out what's going to work out, except for less miles at Kansas. I hear that there's the rare situation where I think everybody looked and said, that's a bad idea. And it turned out to be a bad idea. Yeah, and like they've had a few of those. <laughs> right. Let me let me switch topics here. Uh, well, unless you got another one up your sleeve, I, I think that's about it for any sort of hot hot spots around the country. Um, again, you know, I'd be interested to see what what places like Southern Miss and and Utah State do with their openings. It's getting really really hard for G five schools. Actually, maybe this. It's getting. I think it's getting harder and harder for these G5 schools with low revenues to attract any kind of interesting hires. I mean, you're really going to have to start being creative and stretching deep into the bench of either Power Fives or other upper echelon G5s or even down into the lower levels of college football. We all knew it was heading in this direction when the playoff created such a great chasm between Power Five and the rest. But it just seems like it is really hard to hire these days at the G5 level, especially sort of the second tier of G5. Yeah, you really have to be in tune with kind of who that next generation of coaches, the promising position coach, the promising coordinator, and you really have to track them closely so that you have a sense of when that job comes open, who's ready to to fill that, and, and that maybe you can – get out ahead of the game by a couple years on on a guy. That's really what you have to do, and it's not easy to find that sweet spot. Okay, the last thing is you you either just posted a column, about to post a column on the college football playoff. I've seen some sort of traction out there in the Twitterverse about why is the college football playoff not pushing it back? Why, Why don't we push the dates back on that? It gives us more room to get the full regular season in, And maybe that would have been a good idea if they just would have pushed the playoff back. Now, I don't love that idea because, quite frankly, I think this whole season is a race against the clock. You're just trying to squeeze it in as quickly as possible. And giving more time is not necessarily – sure, it gives you more dates to make up games. But I think ultimately what you're going to do is just create more games that will be postponed. There looks like there's a window – there's an opportunity here for the the – FBS conferences to get most of their games played, but I don't think extending it helps. But you were thinking more about the playoff in general and what it will mean and what it will take to actually get a playoff played. So what was your idea and why are you and what are you wondering about what the people who run the playoff might be missing? All right, so here's what's going to have to happen to pull off a playoff successfully this year. The conference championship games are going to be December 19th. The playoff selection committee is going to meet that night and announce the winners December 20th. 
between December 20th and December 30th, schools are going to the, the four schools involved in the playoff are going to be practicing and staying on campus during those 10 days. They're going to fly on December 30th to either Pasadena or to New Orleans. They're going to do a walkthrough on New Year's Eve, and they're going to play on New Year's Day, and then they're going to go home. The winners are going to be going home for another 10 days, and then they're going to go to Miami, same thing, two days before the game. So this is going to require schools to travel twice, spend a bunch of time on campus, move around, and basically hope that they don't have a COVID outbreak on their team. And I know schools are going to do their best to try to isolate and quarantine and build a type of semi-bubble on campus, but we've already seen that travel and moving around is makes people more susceptible. It just leads me to the conclusion that, boy, it's a real risk. I mean, what happens if that last test before Alabama gets on the plane to, to go to the Sugar Bowl, they have a bunch of guys test positive? Do they just forfeit the game? That seems to me to be pretty risky especially in this environment, cases going up all over the country. I'm just surprised that the playoff has not looked at just bringing all four teams to one site, you know, Atlanta, Detroit, Dallas, you know, whatever city you want to name, bringing them there the day after the selections, testing them before they get on the plane, after they get off the plane, having teams quarantine for three days, test them again. Then you start the week and then they're just there for the week. They're just in that site for the week. They're all they're doing is staying at the hotel, going to practice, and then you play the semis one after the other, same field. Winner go, winners stay, losers go home. You play, you do it again for the next week. Like to me, that's the way to ensure or give you the best chance of pulling this off without a problem. But they don't seem to be even talking about it at this point. And just given what we're seeing around college football, I'm a little bit surprised. Yeah, it's uh, that's I think it's an interesting idea. I do wonder if they will be too beholden at this point to, hey, Miami, sorry, you're not getting the game this year and whatever benefit. Now, I will also say this, though, in a year where it's unlikely that there's going to be a whole bunch of fans at any of these games, maybe some here, some a little more there. But when you're already removing that element, you know, maybe... Maybe it's not that big of a deal, but I do think that they have sort of sunk their heels in on we have the playoff where we want the playoff and we're just going to hope that everything works out around it. Um, you know, we'll see. Again, as cases rise and as the SEC is already down one game this weekend and there's some possibility of at least a couple more, um, LSU's having some issues and Texas A&M is having some issues. You know, maybe that sort of, I, I think if things, Right now where we stand on canceled and postponed games is all the conferences are in a pretty good position, especially the Power Fives. I shouldn't say the Group of Fives because Conference USA is a mess. It's it's had like seven games that had to be rescheduled. Um, But the Power Five conferences, the ones that started early, are all in pretty good position to have a pretty full season to make up all their games. So that's a good position to be in now, but if there's a spike in cancellations – and po- or, or postponements down the stretch here, it's going to be even harder. I do wonder if we get to the point where the 
Power Five conferences start looking, especially the ones that have been playing, and going like, boy, we, we're, we're not going to be able to play that game. This one's not going to be made up if that sparks some more conversation about the playoff. Because right now, I think that there's a lot of optimism within those conferences as, hey, we've come this far. We have our open dates. If we have a few more postponements, we'll be able to make them up. We're doing okay. Yeah, but they're also running out of real estate. You know, it's a race against exactly. how many open dates you have and, you know, how many uh, how many games you got to play and how many weeks left in the season. And, and there probably are going to be some games that, that don't get played in the big conferences, uh, the ones that started early. It's it's just kind of a math problem at this point. But I don't know. I, I just think having a team travel to two different cities yeah. and in between you're spending 20 days on campus in two different blocks – I don't know. It just seems a little bit of a roll of the dice that that's all going to work out, just kind of given what we're seeing all over the country. Dan Wilkin is the uh, national columnist, and he covers a lot of college sports, mostly college sports for USA Today. Dan, thanks for taking us through the uh, the coaching carousel, giving us an idea of what's going to go on with the hot seat here. And um, hopefully we'll get a chance to maybe run into each other at a playoff game, maybe, possibly, uh, outside chance. Who knows? I don't even know what, you know, are they going to allow media to, to cover those games this year? I mean, I guess it's all se- seemingly up in the air. So, yeah, we're all we're all week to week. Hey, Dan, I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Ralph. And now three and out first down. I meant to swing back around to this topic with Dan Wolken from USA Today, but we ran a little long, so I'll address it myself here and pass along some of Dan's thoughts that we shared off air. Coach Euphreeze currently has Liberty at 7-0 and number 22 in the country. Freeze had a lot of success at Ole Miss on the field before NCAA issues and some personal misdeeds got him fired. It wasn't just that his personal behavior was dishonorable and not befitting of a man who preached faith and family. Freeze burned a lot of people at Ole Miss who stood by him during the NCAA investigation and was dishonest to those who were trying to support him. Excuse the pun, but there has been an unofficial hiring freeze on freeze in the SEC the past couple of years. At some point, the conference is probably going to need to relent on that. If for no other reason, then freeze might be able to file a lawsuit. Considering the issues that South Carolina has had, an offensive-minded coach like freeze might be a perfect fit. Now, Dan thinks it might still be too soon for an SEC team to bring in freeze. He'd guess no on Freeze replacing Bill Muschamp if South Carolina does indeed bite the bullet and pay the $13 million buyout. As we noted, the number of other openings around the country is probably going to be pretty small. If David Cutcliffe were to step down at Duke, do you really think the Blue Devils would hire you Freeze? Kansas? Frankly, the Jayhawks are in such bad shape, I don't know why Freeze would want that job. 
there has been some speculation about Southern Miss as a landing spot for Freeze because it's his alma mater, but I'm not sure Liberty is in a better spot considering USM's financial woes and the state of Conference USA. Another thing to keep in mind at Liberty, something that might speed up Freeze's departure from the school and maybe make a little more urgency on his side to find another job. Without getting too deep into it, clearly the school has some leadership issues right now and some changes at the top. How that affects football, I do not know. But often, if there is instability within a school, it leads to some instability within an athletic program. And for a coach who very much sees himself as an upward mover anyway, it may prompt that coach to say, listen, I think I've done as well as I can here. Now it's time to find someplace else to go. I have no doubt that someone will give Hugh Freeze a chance to be a Power 5 football coach again, but right now, the options for him seem extremely limited. Second down, let's look at this week's slate of games. There are none matching ranked teams this weekend after a couple of top 10 matchups last week. Uh, it calms down a little bit, which means one of two things, though. A, not much in terms of nationally relevant results, or B, some really crazy and unexpected stuff. So where are the potential hotspots for an upset or two? Well, if we're looking at the very top of the food chain, let's start with number two, Notre Dame going to Boston College. The obvious history of Notre Dame beating number one and then losing the next week to BC jumps out. It happened in 1993, the last time Notre Dame beat a number one team. If you remember, BC came to Notre Dame the following week and beat the Irish on a last second 41-yard field goal. Now, these BC Eagles are playing pretty well under first-year coach Jeff Halfley. He's done a nice job. They even put a scare into Clemson. If the Irish aren't on point, they could get trapped. But for all of BC's positives this year, this is still a roster that's woefully short on speed and athleticism. How about number three, Ohio State at Maryland? Behind Talia Tagovailoa, Yes, to his little brother. The Terps offense has been lighting it up the past two weeks. Ohio State still looks like it's finding itself on defense. Could Maryland score enough to finally put some pressure on Justin Fields and that Buckeye offense for the first time this season? We'll see. Third down, as we record on Tuesday, there has been no official word out of the SEC about two games that could be in danger of being postponed this weekend. LSU is having COVID issues leading up to its contest against number one Alabama. Texas A&M has reportedly had a couple of positive tests and there is concern the Aggies might not be able to play Tennessee. So as of this week, the three Power Five conferences that started in September, the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12, all are positioned to get all of their games in. The open weeks and the extra space in the schedule have allowed for room to make up the postponements. That runway is going to get shorter now as the season goes on and keeping players and coaches from getting infected as the virus runs wild throughout the country is going to become much harder. As I mentioned with Dan, I feel like this college football season is in a race to the finish line. 
That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Westwood One Podcasts. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.